Ephesians 1, starting at verse 3. This is what Holy Scripture says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are some hymns in the Christian life that bear careful thought and attention, and I believe that hymn by Rodegast is one of them. Samuel Rodegast wrote that hymn for his friend uh, Gastorius, Gastonius, and uh, Gastonius was, and everyone thought was going to die, and so he wrote this hymn for his good friend, urging him to maintain the faith, to stay true to the Lord, and then he was revived, and so Gastonius was a musician, and he wrote the melody to the hymn that his friend wrote for him to encourage his heart. What God ordains is always good, his will abideth holy, always good. <laughs> and this hymn is reflecting on when life is hard, God's will is still good. And the last line of that hymn, and this is all I'll say about it, is one I think you need to pray that you can say with all your heart, so to my God I yield me. There, there's the rub, right? God is great, God is sovereign over all, and he brings these circumstances into your life. Will you yield to the Lord? Will you trust the Lord? May God make it so, and when it's difficult to do, keep that little song sheet and sing it to your heart. All right, that was for free, but worthy of our commendation. I uh, would just ask you to pray with me again as we open God's word. Father, now please help us as we look to the book and we pray that you would teach us 
And most importantly, Lord, that you would enlarge our view of you and then create change in our lives because of it. We ask in the name of Christ, amen. The other day, I was reading my auto insurance policy. Don't mock me. Uh, I was very bored. Uh, anyway, I, uh, I, it's like renewal time, so I'm reading through it, and I'm reading through my policy, meandering through it, and my eyes fell on this section which says roadside assistance. And, and I'm, I'm reading it, reading it, like, I didn't know we had roadside assistance in our auto insurance policy. Why am I paying for that other roadside assistance that I thought I needed when I had it for free or whatever in my insurance policy? It was included. So I was living my life like the reality of my insurance policy did not exist. I had not aligned my practice to my reality. I was not living my life in line with what was true. People often fail to recognize this relationship, that real change in a person's life most often occurs as their thinking is changed. Behavior is rooted in belief. All through the New Testament, behavior rooted in belief. I believed I had no roadside assistance in my auto insurance policy, so my bad behavior was wasting money on another roadside assistance program. I needed to change my behavior now that my belief had been corrected. The truth set me free, or it saved me a couple hundred bucks. Behavior is modified by belief. We've settled into this remarkable hymn of praise. You can call it all kinds of things in Ephesians chapter 1. It's one sentence from verse 3 down to the end of verse 14. In the original, it says one sentence. And Paul is just exploding with praise to God, right? Uh, blessed, uh, praised be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's beginning his letter to the Ephesians here with these truths about God so that the behavior, the lifestyle of the people he's writing to will change. Paul understands they need a bigger view of God and what God has done for them in saving them in order to alter how they are living. That makes sense? Behavior rooted in belief. And we know that's the case uh, because Paul begins, it's, it's not like black and white, but basically the first three chapters of the letter are just Paul telling people what's true, what's true, what's true. And then the last three chapters, four to six, is Paul saying, live this way, live this way, live this way. It goes in that order. You've got to believe these things first, and that will alter then how you live. And now in this hymn of praise, where Paul is beginning his hymn of praise by focusing on God's actions in what we would call eternity past, things God decided before time existed. <laughs> now he makes a subtle but very important shift because something has to happen to you 
in the present to enact what's been decided in the past. That's the key thing to observe where this little transition in the hymn of praise. Paul is saying, I'm going to tell you what has to happen to you in the present in order to enact what God has determined or decided in the past. So that's where he goes in verse 7. That's where we want to focus this morning. In him, Ephesians 1 verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So let's deal with these two things this morning, redemption and forgiveness. These are the things that are applied to a human in real time, in their personal history. And if there were ever two words that Christians like to bandy about, isn't, aren't these some of them like, like redeemed, redemption, forgiveness? We like to use these words, but do we know what Paul meant by them when he used them? Can I just give you a little, a little hint in, in your Bible reading? If, if you come across a word and you just can't sort of immediately define it, that's where you stop. That's where you get a Bible dictionary. That's where you look up other occurrences in your Bible and say, how's it used here? How's it used there? Because you need to understand what these words mean. One of the worst things that can happen to a Christian is you grow so familiar with a vocabulary, you have no understanding of what it means. <laughs> And you're just reading words and you're mouthing words. You're saying blabbity, blabbity, blab, blab, redemption, blabbity, blab, forgiveness. And it doesn't mean anything. You got to have it mean something in order to understand what the Lord has done for you. So both the words redemption and forgiveness, they're held sort of in what's called apposition. They're kind of side by side there by Paul. Both words are describing release, release. Like when the teacher, kids, you know what it's like, whether it's a homeschool mom teacher or whether it's your Christian school teacher or your public school teacher, when they let you out for recess early, <laughs> you are released. Out to recess you go. Or the customs officer at the customs gate lets you through. You're released. So redemption, this is what you got to mark, redemption secures release by the payment of a debt, that's redemption, secures release by the payment of a debt. Forgiveness secures release by the discharge of a debt. Redemption, payment, forgiveness, discharge. Both are true. Let's deal with each one individually. First one is this. We're going to talk about redemption. He bought you back by the death of his son. The back part meaning he made you, you rebelled against him in your sins, and he bought you back by the death of his son. So the word redemption is this idea of, um, you'd be familiar with the term ransom. Someone is kidnapped and they demand a ransom, a payment in exchange for the release of the person. Well, that's kind of the idea here, although get rid of the kidnapping idea. The, The whole concept of redemption started when Israel was released out of their slavery in Egypt. God says to Moses, Moses, go to the people, my people that are enslaved in Egypt and tell them this is what God says. This is Exodus 6.6. I am Yahweh 
and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So Moses is to go tell this enslaved nation they will be redeemed, they will be purchased and set free. They're going to be released. God is going to do it through redemption. Redemption requires a payment in exchange for the release, right? This is what redemption means. A payment has to be made. Well, what's the payment? What's the purchase price? What was the ransom paid for Israel? Do you remember? It was the death of all the firstborn, all the firstborn male children, all the firstborn male livestock, all the firstborn males. That's the price. Unless, of course, you obeyed God and sacrificed a lamb and painted the frame, the door frame of your home with the lamb's blood, anybody who did that was spared from having to pay that ultimate price. The lamb paid the price in the place of your firstborn son. Now, I don't want to get too lost in this, but I think it's important to see. This is why God put a redemption price on every firstborn male. Firstborn male uh, of your sheep, you sacrifice it to the Lord. Your firstborn male son, you don't sacrifice him, but you have to pay the redemption price price. That's what it's called. This is Numbers 18, 16. And their firstborn son's redemption price, at a month old, you shall redeem them, you shall fix at five shekels in silver. <laughs> and so, what, so you, have, you have your firstborn son, mom and dad, and not your secondborn son, not your thirdborn son, but your firstborn son, not your daughter who was born before him, but your firstborn son, and you go to the temple and you pay five shekels to the temple, that's the redemption price. He's been redeemed, he's been released, he's, he's yours now. The price has been paid. So this concept of redemption, the whole idea of paying a price to secure someone's release, I, I, I'm pointing this out because it's soaked into the Jewish consciousness. Like nobody had to explain redemption. It's happening all the time. And it touched all kinds of areas of their culture. Uh, you, you could redeem, secure the release by the payment of price. You could redeem your, your brother, your cousin, your uncle. Uh, the law gave measures. So uh, let me read to you Leviticus chapter 25. Listen carefully. This is 25 verse 47. If a stranger or sojourner with you, that means somebody who's not Jewish but is living in Israel, a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother, a fellow Jew, beside him becomes poor and then sells himself to the stranger or the sojourner with you, the non-Jewish guy, or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him. A close relative from his clan may redeem him. Or if he gets rich, he can redeem himself. So yeah, things go bad for you economically, and your non-Jewish neighbor's there, and you're like, hey, I'll become your slave for a while, and, and uh, you pay my debts over here, and so you do that. And then 
you call your uncle and say, hey, Uncle Louie, <laughs> do you want to get me out of slavery? And you pay this redemption price, and now you are released. You're set free. So built into the law for Israel is this procedure, this whole payment structure, how you're going to free family members from slavery. And it's all done by redemption. In every case, a price is paid. And after the price is paid, the person is released. So that is all in the background to Ephesians 1.7. When Paul... The Pharisee, the former Pharisee who knows the law, probably had memorized his Old Testament, most certainly had, um, and understands all of that language and what those words means. When, when he says this, this is part of what he is thinking here. And notice again how he says it, verse 7. In, notice the verb tense. In him we have redemption through his blood. We have it. It's our current possession it's, this is a present tense verb, right? We Christians exist as those who have been redeemed, who live in the freedom of a redeemed slave. Somebody paid something in order to secure your release from something. Your release from what? Well, the, the penalty for your sins and your trespasses, obviously. And who makes this payment? Verse 7 again, in him we have redemption. And clearly this redemption being in him, in Christ, must mean that it was secured by Christ or paid by Christ. And if we had any doubt whatsoever about that, all we have to do is read the next three words. In him we have redemption through his blood. There's the price. There's the payment that was made. The death of our Lord Jesus Christ is what purchases back his people. Paul is not suggesting, by the way, when he says the blood uh, through his blood, he's not suggesting some magical property to the blood, the actual physical blood of Jesus, anything silly like that. Through his blood is just another way of describing the whole substitutionary death and atonement of Jesus. We can speak about this in the Bible as uh, his, his death, the cross, Calvary, the tree, his suffering, his blood. Any one of these refers to the entirety of his saving work. And the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ paid the required ransom to free us. Free us from what? We were enslaved to sin. Jesus himself said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Raise your hand if you've ever sinned. And the rest of you are lying. You have sinned. You have done things that God has told you not to do. You have failed to do things that God has commanded you to do. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You were enslaved to sin. And all your attempts to escape failed. You, you, you bore down. You, you did this new fitness program. You did whatever. And it just it didn't work. And instead of running away to freedom like an escaped slave, you kept turning back to your sins. In other words, we needed this divine intervention. Otherwise, we were going to keep turning back to Egypt. Leeks and onions look good out here in the wilderness. And God himself provided this intervention. By Christ's dying on the cross, 
The wrath of God toward you and toward me was, here's a Bible word, propitiated. God's wrath was appeased. It was satisfied. Hmm. The payment was made. It's kind of like you buying lunch for the person behind you in the drive-through line. I mean, it's never happened to me. I'm waiting for the day that happens to me. But I'm sure it's great. And you, you come up and they give you your food and you try to pay. And they're like, no, your, your lunch is free. It's, it's all yours. It's been paid for. You can't pay for it again. Christian, by his blood, you are freed. His death on your behalf released you forever from spiritual death and slavery. Now you are truly free to live for God and to please God. Fanny Crosby wrote, redeemed how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the lamb, redeemed through his infinite mercy, his child and forever I am. What an interesting thing you did there, Fanny. Taking redemption and linking it to being part of the family of God. Because that's exactly true. Dear Fanny was on to something here. She's knitting together redemption and adoption. It's not just that the price was paid to secure my release. The adoption papers were signed too, weren't they? And there was no hard feelings on God's part. Isn't that remarkable? Redemption is a commercial term. And we might be tempted to think that God would remain kind of standoffish because he had to buy us out of a slavery of our own making, like a dad coughing up bail for his delinquent son. It's a very quiet car ride home. But that's not so with God. He secures our release by sending his own son to die in our place so that he can purchase us, pay the ransom, and make us forever sons of his own, never to fall back into the clutches of our enemy again. And like the father in the story of the prodigal son, he joyfully pulls you into full membership of the family of God forever. It's party with the family, not a lecture in the car. Praise the Lord. It can seem too good to be true, which is why Francis Ridley Havergal wrote, nothing to pay? The debt is so great. What will I do with the awful weight? How shall the way of escape be made? Nothing to pay? Yet it must be paid. Hear the voice of Jesus say, verily thou hast nothing to pay. All has been put to my account. I have paid the full amount. Praise the Lord. Like the old k ads used to say, but wait, there's more. <laughs> so he bought you back by the death and by the blood of his son. Secondly, he erased your debt by the death of his son. So remember redemption. Redemption looks at our salvation from one angle and forgiveness comes at it from another angle. Verse 7 again, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 18 for a moment. You've got your Bible, turn there. 
I'd like to commend you. I hear much more paper flipping. I'd forgotten I made some offhanded comment about bring a paper Bible, and one brother reminded me today, look, I obey. Uh, <laughs> so whatever. Matthew chapter 18. Redemption tells me that my sins were paid for, but my sins were also forgotten. Forgotten. Maybe you recall this parable that Jesus told. We're in Matthew 18, verse 23. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So he has servants who owe him money. He wants to settle up. Let's get the money back. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. This is, by Jesus, a purposefully, ridiculously astronomical amount of money. To our ears, that should sound something like trillions and trillions of dollars. It's an insane amount. It's the kind of debt you'd never be able to pay back. Sure enough, verse 25, and since he could not pay, the slave could not pay back his master. His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children all that he had and payment to be made. And so this this servant, his family, all his stuff, presumably he bought a lot of stuff with all those talents. (laughs) It's all going to be sold so the master can try and recoup some of his lost trillions. Look at verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, imploring the master, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And we're supposed to go, no, you won't. That's impossible. That's an impossible sum of debt. You can't possibly pay that back. Everybody who's listening to Jesus, that's what they're thinking. And then comes the surprise, verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. And that's the mic drop in the parable. The master did what? He forgave the debt. So where redemption, we looked at a moment ago, emphasizes the price that was paid in order to secure our release, forgiveness emphasizes the erasure or the elimination of that debt. It's a slightly different way of looking at the same thing. Dear friends of mine in college down in the U.S. Uh, had a medical emergency without medical insurance. <laughs> and within the span of three days, they were hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And they had no money. I mean, they were already up to their ears in student loans. So when everybody was healthy and everything, they went to the hospital and they begged for mercy. They just said, we, we, we can't pay. And you know what that hospital did? They forgave the debt. That's that's the language they use. We'll forgive this debt. So so they erased the debt. They acted like the debt never existed. They, They absorbed the costs associated with it. So like the word redemption, This word forgive, it's also a commercial term. It comes to us from the world of finance, from banking. It's an accounting term. It's used today. You got a mortgage and you want that to be forgiven. That's part of how it can be described. It speaks to releasing someone from a debt they owe. That's what it means to be forgiven, to be released from the debt that you owe. The obligation to pay back is removed. 
What did you owe God? An eternity of hell. The wages of sin is death. And God looked at your case and he chose to forgive that debt, to erase it entirely. And where does this spring up from? Look at verse 7 again. The riches of his grace. That's just one of those phrases. It's hard to get across the extent of its meaning. His forgiveness of our sins is according to the wealth, the riches, the, the superabundant wealth of his free, unearnable favor. So in the case of my friends in California, the hospital had enough wealth to absorb the financial loss of erasing what my friends owed them and then to carry on. How much more can God forgive when his act flows out of bottomless grace? The word grace, it, it occurs well, more than a dozen, but you'd find a dozen in English in, in the book of Ephesians. Just in this one letter, it's there 12, 13 times. It's kind of like Paul was thinking, I'm going to hammer the grace nail because I know how hard it is to believe. That's what it should be like for you. If you're understanding the grace of God, there should be part of your brain going, that's way too good to be true. There's so much in us that wants to believe we caused this salvation. We earned this salvation. We maintain this salvation. We want grace, but we want grace with a footnote. Free, unmerited favor and a little bit of help from us. We want election to have been based on good things we might do. We want predestination to have been sparked by our foreseen potential. We want redemption to have been paid for by our efforts in the present. And we want forgiveness to be earned by our sincere repentances. And God looks at you and says, nope, it's all grace. It was by grace, Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. It was by grace, Colossians 2.13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of the debt that stood against Against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It was by grace that Jesus took a cup and when he had given thanks, gave it to his disciples saying to all of them, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This forgiveness was all by grace, all motivated out of the super abundant wealth of his grace, the never-ending geyser of grace, the ever-flowing river of grace, the shoreless ocean of grace, which is why it can only be accessed in him. This redemption and this forgiveness is not for sale. It cannot be stolen. It cannot be earned. It can only be received as one receives a gift. But here's an even more wonderful thing. You can ask for this gift. That's right. 
You can ask God to give you redemption. You can ask God to forgive you of your sins. In fact, this is the only way to access this gift. The only thing, in my mind, this is all I can come up with, the only reason someone would not ask God for such a precious gift is this, as this is pride. I don't want to offend you, but I cannot think of anything else that would keep you from asking God for this gift. Why do I think that? Well, you're in some kind of crisis, and a friend says, oh, I'm going to drop off a meal. What, do you, what, what does every Canadian do? Oh, no, 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 I don't need a meal. No, no, we're good. We're good. Thanks, we're good. But there's a part of your brain going, oh, man, I'd kill for a meal. <laughs> but we are too proud to admit our weakness and our need, Right? But needy and weak is exactly what you are, spiritually speaking. In fact, it's worse than that. You're already dead. So you have to ask God to save you in real time. You, you need to apply to God in prayer. You can use whatever words you want. There's no, like, you don't have to wait for somebody to hand you a little, you know, business card. Pray this prayer. It's a guaranteed winner. Like, no, they're, they're, what God is interested in is your heart, the sincerity of your heart, appealing to him to apply this redemption to you, appealing to him to apply this forgiveness to you. You need redeeming. You're enslaved to sin. You need forgiveness. You have offended the almighty God, and you will see him, and you will stand before him, and you will perhaps have this moment in time brought to your remembrance where you will say, why, why didn't I plead? That's my fear for you. That you would hear the good news and turn your back on it. May God protect you from it. Now those of us who are already Christians, I think your heart should be responding to this teaching about forgiveness in two ways. I'll show you, show you those two ways from two parables. So the first way you should be responding is this. People who understand what they have been forgiven of, what they've been forgiven from, should have hearts that are exploding with love for God. If I'm truly redeemed and forgiven all my sins, my love for God should be blowing up in my heart. How can I prove it to you? Look at Luke chapter 7. Luke this time, chapter 7. We'll come back to the Matthew passage in a moment. But Luke chapter 7 in verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. So think of a banker. He's got two people that owe him money. Luke 7, 41. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled or forgave the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon, this is a Pharisee, not Simon Peter. Simon the Pharisee answered, hmm, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you've judged rightly. As he goes on to explain the parable, he says, he who is forgiven little 
loves a little. He who is forgiven much loves much. Have you been forgiven a little or much? (laughs) If your love for God, all right, Christian, speaking to you, if you find that your personal love for God has grown cold, I bet one cure to that might be to meditate on the forgiveness of God that came to you out of the untold wealth of his grace by the death of his son. Have you considered what you owed him? Have you pondered how unlovable you were in your sins? Have you forgotten what it meant to be dead in your trespasses and sins? If you're an unhappy Christian, you are probably a forgetful Christian. Want to know how great was your debt? Want to know how much you were loved? Want to know how much you've been forgiven? Simply look at the cross. See the five bleeding wounds again. See the mocking of the crowds again. See the betrayal of his friend again. See the abuse of the dying thief again. See the abandonment of all his other friends again. See the three hours of darkness again. Hear the feeble voice cry again, Aloy, Aloy, Lama Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Part of what Jesus secured in his cross work was the right to forgive your debt. That debt that you owed is at least on partial display in his suffering and his death. Who loves God? The man or the woman who starts to grasp how much they have been forgiven. Their debt of hell was paid by another. Do you believe that? Or are you still living under some self-created cloud of doubt or penance or morbid unworthiness. Christian, you are forgiven. That's your reality. You're forgiven. It is all paid. The debt you owed has been erased and it's been forgotten. Therefore, we love God. Second application from a second parable. Go back to Matthew 18. Christians that understand how much they have been forgiven will be very, very quick to forgive other people. God expects us to forgive other people the way he forgave us. That's the point of the parable in Matthew 18. So in this story, you got the slave Remember, he's been forgiven the astronomical debt, trillions and trillions of dollars. And what does he do? In the story Jesus tells, he goes out and finds somebody who owes him thousands of dollars, which is still a lot, but it's not trillions and trillions. And he chokes the guy and throws him into prison. This is Matthew 18, verse 32. So his master summoned him, the guy who had been forgiven trillions and is now punishing someone who owes him thousands. That's us, okay? This is the part where we're supposed to relate to. (laughs) His master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. 
I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? If you can't find it in your heart, if you can't find it in your heart to forgive someone, and I mean really and truly forgive someone. So here we are in this story of a slave who's been forgiven so much. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Jesus is looking at us and he is saying, if you can't find it in your heart to forgive someone, and I mean really, really forgive, like erase the entire relational debt that they've incurred against you, then not only are you sinning, you clearly have no idea how much you've been forgiven. Do you see this relationship? If you can't forgive people who have deeply offended you, when they ask for your forgiveness, and you find you can't, you, you are not understanding what you have been forgiven. Which can only mean you have far too low an estimate of how guilty and how hopeless you were. Later on in this epistle, go back to Ephesians chapter 4 now, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. So we're reading the insurance policy. Oh, this is what's true. How should we live? Right? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Let all, what word is that? Did you get that? Class, what word is that? All. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, anger, the sinful kind of anger, and clamor, looking for a fight, and slander, speaking badly about anybody, be put away from you, along with all malice. Malice is the plotting of evil. Let it all be put away from you. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Here it comes, ready? Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That is not intended as hallmark card sentiment, something to read and ignore. Not only are you under obligation to forgive your brothers and sisters, you are duty-bound to do it in the manner and to the depth in which you were forgiven, as God in Christ forgave you. Question, what would you do if God looked at you when you asked him for forgiveness and he said something as immature and stupid as this, I'll forgive you, but I won't forget. What if God said that to you? What if God said to you, I'll forgive, but I won't forget? If God said that to me, I'd die a thousand deaths. You won't forget? 
you'll have a list of all my sins at your disposal to bring up every next time I, may, I fail. You're going to stand aloof from me until I prove I'm somehow worthy of your love. You're going to formally accept me, but kind of relationally hold me off. Friend, is that what you want from your God? Is that what you want from your Savior? Or would you rather hear, I have cast your sins behind my back. I have removed your transgressions as far as the east is from the west. I have tread your iniquities under my foot. I have cast your sins into the depths of the sea. I, I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. That's what I want to hear, because that is true forgiveness. And that same kind of intentional forgetfulness is all tied up in you forgiving your wife or your dad or your fellow church member, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Look, it is basically inevitable that somebody in this church is going to sin against you because sinners going to sin. And when they come to their senses and they humbly ask you to forgive them, if you get this, you can look at your husband, you can look at your wife, you can look at your kid, you can look at your church member right in the eye and say, oh, when I consider all that Christ has done for me, when I consider my debt that was paid and how quickly and thoroughly he has forgiven me, it would be my joy to forgive you. And then you carry on in real relationship with that person. But there's always somebody thinking, but what, what, what if he sins again? Huh? Which is exactly what started this parable. That question. Matthew 18, 21. The setting of the parable. Yeah, this parable, the servant forgiven the massive debt parable was set up by this question. Lord, Peter asks, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, seven numbered of completion. That sounds like quite a big thing I've just said. To which Jesus responds, how about 77? Some versions, 70 times seven. It's just like, no, Peter, not seven. You never stop. You never stop. I knew a church where uh, two members of that church had been in business together. The business fell apart, relationally dysfunctional between the two members of one church, both of whom refused to talk to one another. By the time I knew of the church, that had been going on for some six or seven years. Showing up every Sunday, same church, I won't talk to you, I won't talk to you. That does not make the gospel beautiful. Brother, sister, uh, avoiding people, cutting people off, leaving the church is the absolutely worst way to solve the problem of somebody's offense against you. Leaving a church without attempting, at least attempting to deal with the sin, is in itself a sin. How do I know that? Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, Go, there's one command. Tell him his fault. 
There's another command. And there's a little caveat, just you and him alone. I don't see anything in there about gossip to all your friends. Could you pray for me? I really need to talk to, you know, blah, 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 uh, about this, this thing he did. Uh, yeah. Could you also pray for me? Do you know he did this to me? And I also wonder if you could pray for me. Oh, may God banish that kind of nonsense from Grace Fellowship Church. Your brother sins against you, go. Tell him. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Praise the Lord. If you refuse to do that, you are sinning just as much as he is. You're not obeying a biblical command. Why does Jesus make us do this? Because you were bought with a price. You don't own you. You're owned by another. And that other wants you to be so like him in this world that is full of sin and trespasses and iniquities so that this little outpost of heaven on earth, Grace Fellowship Church, is to be a place where God is on display. Where people truly love each other, where they truly forgive each other, where, where, where we act like we're under a different authority. It's not the authority of me, it is the authority of God as mediated to me through his word. If it's here, I do it because he said so, even if I don't understand it. There are some of you who can get all excited about doctrine or your favorite celebrity preacher or getting yourself some kind of Christian platform or getting all your theological preferences catered to and you have never actually confronted a brother in love about their sin. You've never joyfully forgiven some sister who sinned against you terribly. And then, then you dare to look at your, your, your husband or your wife or your kid right in the eye and tell them, I'll forgive, but I won't forget. If that you, you're all talk and no walk. This Authentic forgiveness and restoration, it is the Christian life. This is what it means to walk in the truth. And that's, I don't know about you, that's where I want to live and die. I want to live and die in the land of truth. Because how else, how else are we going to pray that prayer, our Father in heaven, forgive us our debts just as we also have forgiven our debtors? You know what you're saying when you pray that? I want you, God, to forgive me the way I forgive everybody else. Do you really want that? Well, you got to pray that, so you got to figure that out, right? Even if the sin against you is of such a grotesque, God forbid, abusive, offensive nature, such that prudence may dictate you're not going to stay in the same church, it's just not possible, life under the sun. There is no sin for which a Christian cannot say to another person when they ask for it, yes, I forgive you. We may not stay married. We may not remain in business together. You might be getting sent off to prison, but because of Christ, I can forgive you. We, we may have to wait till glory to restore the relational thing. <laughs> but in almost every other case, it can be restored on this side of heaven. 
you were a sinner. In eternity, in eternity past, God selected you to be one of his people. He marked you out before your birth to be part of his family. He sent his son to pay the ransom price for you so he could set you free. And the son gave his life so that God might forgive you. Just choose to forget all of your sins. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. You are predestined to adoption. You are chosen to be holy and blameless in his presence. Now live like that is true. Because it is. If you're his, your eternal insurance policy states it. This is what's true. This is who you really, really are. And that knowledge, if you're really getting it, will profoundly shape your behavior. So Christian, be who you are. Redeemed, forgiven. Let's pray. God, in your great mercy, this is one of those times we're praying that you would make us doers of the word, not hearers only. So I pray for those considering Christ for the very first time. Make them doers who pray and ask for you to save them. Pray for those of us who know there's some forgiveness we must extend or seek. Help us to be doers of the word. This we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.